Hello, my name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get to bring the word today. I'm excited. Uh, we're going to pray for the word uh, here in a second, but I just got to give you a little secret. Uh, anytime I have to deal with a tough subject, I do child dedication because I love kids and they soften the blow, right? In Jesus' name? Just me? Okay. Hey, can we pray before we jump into this word? Father, thank you for your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would come now. It would speak to us, it would move us, it would mark us, that, Father, your will would be done today, and we would walk out of here more aware of who you are, who we are, and how to proceed. So we give you this time for your glory, we pray, amen. Amen. Well, hey, we've been in this series called Dust, and we kind of kicked it up talking about the question or asking ourselves the question, can we trust God with our mess? And I I hope that the output of this is yes, because we all have messes. Amen? Right. So week one was just kind of the, the mess in general. Week two, we had uh, my good friend Emily. She came and, and she's a missionary and, and she talked about the dust of disappointment. And I just really quickly, if I can connect some dots, uh, a couple years ago, we had some fun and we did a quick fundraiser. Uh, we, this mission organization, I guess their camel went down and they needed a new camel. And I, I said, I would love to help raise money for a camel. And because you guys are so generous, we bought a herd of camels and we blessed them with a lot of camels. Uh, and, and it was like $10,000 in one day, which is amazing at the strength of the generosity of this church. And I will tell you, when you sow into God's kingdom, you typically see recoil on a kingdom level. When I say recoil, I mean that you create problems. And those are good problems. And so we created a problem in the Middle East. We opened a pipeline on the Silk Road where the gospel is being proclaimed. And how Emily fits in the picture is uh, one of our missionaries was arrested for sharing the gospel. And we used her resources and legal knowledge and legal teams to help get that person out of the situation there. And so I'm excited to tell you more in the months and days ahead about how we're partnering with her as we take, uh, right, the Middle East, the 1040 window for Jesus, because there is revival breaking out over there. And we're excited that we get to be a part of it. So thank you for being here last week. Thank you that we got to pour into her as she poured into us. So she did a great job, did she not? All right, beautiful, beautiful. Well, this week I'm talking about conflict or dust-ups. Anyone ever had to deal with conflict? Raise your hand. If your hand is not up, you are conflict. And we're all dealing with you, right? We all deal with conflict. It's natural. And uh, as I have gotten older, and I know that I'm not much older, but as I'm in this halftime start, I'm, I'm starting to audit my life. And I've come to this conclusion that it's easier to filter your life than to deal with it sometimes. Now, I want to warn you, or, or not warn you, but give you a public service announcement. I am talking about conflict today. But there is an absolute line in the sand, a difference between what is a conflict and what is abuse. And I want you to understand that I'm going to be speaking to conflict today. And I think the Lord can use conflict. I think the enemy is in abuse. And I am not saying when I speak to conflict that this is how we handle abuse. I think abuse is of the enemy. I think abuse is real. And I think that some of you need to filter your lives to get out of your abuseful situations. And I am not speaking about that today. I'm speaking about the drama that we carry because of our stain of our sin nature. But I want to be really clear because if you hear me wrong, I don't, we could do damage and I don't want to do damage. I want you to know that abuses of the enemy, we do not tolerate it. And if you are in an abuseful situation, 
we are here to help you get out of that situation by any means possible because that's not from God. Nor does God desire to use abuse to teach you something. That is not our God. That clear? Good. Conflict, on the other hand, I think the Lord does use. And, and that's kind of what I want to talk about today. And, and so when I said it's easier to filter your life than to deal with it, that is a, a real problem that we as Americans have is we don't like conflict. Yet if we know Jesus, we follow Jesus, we read Jesus' words, he invites us into the greatest conflict ever, the conflict of good and evil, the conflict of his victory over the enemy. And he promises us conflict. And so here's what I would tell you. It is easier to leave, to run, to bury, to sweep away the tension, to pretend that there is no tension than to actually deal with it. But the Lord is not inviting us to ignore things. He's inviting us to go right at it because he is a God of confrontation. And here's why that matters is because where there is no conflict, there is no honesty. And where there's no honesty, there's no authenticity. And God can't heal, fix, or save someone you wish you were. He can only deal with who you actually are. So honesty matters. And the only way we get to honestly living and honesty is when we deal with our conflict. I'll say it this way. No church or person that has grown did so without conflict. And no church or person without conflict has grown. And it's not a world problem, it's a church problem. And take, for instance, this picture on the screen. Uh, this is a ladder. It's a simple ladder. In fact, it very much is reminiscent of a cleaner or a, a facilities person who got lazy on the job and didn't put away all his tools. That's all that it is. There's nothing special about this ladder, except that that ladder has been there for over 300 years. In fact, it is known as the immovable ladder. And here's why it's the immovable ladder. In fact, if you can't see it clear, I, I got another picture, a little zoomed in, help you focus on it. I know it's all one color, uh, but that is a ladder that is sitting outside of the building of the church of the Holy uh, Scepter in Jerusalem. It is the place where they believe that Jesus was crucified and the church was erected on this site. And because of its sacredness, because of its holiness, because of the place that it is into all of the world, uh, currently right now, there are six sects of Christianity that are claiming ownership of this church. In fact, it has been as high as eight. It has gotten down to six. And the reason that this ladder has been here for over 300 years is to do anything at this church, to move anything one inch, you have to have the other five churches sign off on it. 300 years, folks. It may be longer. The reason we know it's 300 years is because there is literally a painting from 1728 of the church, and wouldn't you know it, in the painting is the ladder. <laughs> Why is that important? Is because George Washington wasn't even born yet when that ladder was not put away correctly. And yet here it stands, a testament to our conflict and the silliness of it. 300 years, a ladder, a ladder most likely made of Lebanon cedar wood, the same wood probably from the same forest that the cross came from. Pretty crazy to think about. What does it tell us? It tells us that conflict is not just a world problem. It is a church problem. 
And why is it a church problem? Because no one is better at being divisive than the church. If you don't believe me, just go ask how the church is doing to the world's perspective. Are we known more for what we are against or who we follow? Are we known more for what we don't like or our love? We are people of division in a world who follows a savior who says, no, no, you were people meant to be to change the world. So conflict is a church problem. Now, my guiding thought today comes from a, a Mennonite evangelist named John Howard Yoder. Uh, that's a fun name, John Howard Yoder. But I love what he says. And I think it's so important for us today. It says to be human is to be in conflict, to offend and be offended. To be human in light of the gospel is to face that conflict in redemptive dialogue. See, the truth is, no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you put effort into it, no matter how careful you are, you can try to live your life as politically correct where you don't offend anyone and the only person will lose is you because you'll have the most miserable life possible. The reality is, is because of our sin nature, there is impossible to live a life in which we don't offend someone and we aren't offended. We carry it around. Sometimes like a badge of honor. You any have those family conversations where all they talk about at a family meal is who did something to them? They play the victim mentality like it's a, an instrument for all to hear. And they just declare who did what, why they were wronged, and how unfair it is. Well, get over it. The world isn't fair. To be human is to be in conflict, to offend and be offended. It's ironic to me that a bunch of pieces of wood have become a symbol of division in our church, yet a bunch of pieces of wood rearranged become a symbol of hope and that of a cross. So if it is true that where there is no conflict, there's no honesty, how did we get here? Today, if you have your Bible, we're going to be going cover to cover. We're going to be going Old Testament to New Testament. But if you want to hone in somewhere, I would invite you to turn to James chapter four. We're going to look at the stepbrother of Jesus and his words today. But before we get there, how did conflict enter the picture? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Life started. He spoke it into existence. There was nothing and then there was something. At every turn, he said, this is good. He created man. He said, this is good. And he says, ah, but it's not good for him to be alone. So Genesis chapter one is this macro level of the creation story. Genesis chapter two is this honed in version of the creation of the most important thing in the created order. It's the creation of man and women. It says that the scriptures that it caused the man to fall into a deep sleep and then he removed a rib from him and he fashioned a wife and then we see the first wedding in the history of the world as God walks his daughter Eve down the aisle and he puts his hand into Adam's and Adam goes, whoa, this is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. I'm gonna call her woman. So women, when you are called woman, do not be offended. It's like saying, wow, you're beautiful, I think. <laughs> but it's beautiful, and life is good, and they're given purpose, they're given order, they're given direction. They are to name the animals, they are to take dominion over the earth. They are to lead and become co-creators with God. And then there's one rule, do not eat of the tree of good and evil. 
And I love it how much we get this wrong because we know that a serpent come and it tempts and we think it's Eve's problem, but nowhere in scripture does it say that Eve was alone. Adam was right there. And together we fell. And then in Genesis chapter three, we get the result of our sin as the great giver of justice, God punishes those for their sins. And this is what he says to the serpent. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you. I'm going to put amenity. I'm going to put hostility between you and the woman. I'm going to put hostility between the offspring and hers. We see that conflict enters the picture for the first time in the world. And it becomes unescapable and inevitable because conflict is inevitable. You don't believe me? The very next story is a brother killing another brother out of what? Jealousy. Fast forward to Exodus, we have God's people flourishing and getting become so populous that they end up becoming enslaved in Egypt. And there's this guy named Moses and God says to Moses, I want you to go uh, free my people. And so he goes to Pharaoh and he says, hey, I need you to let these people go. God wants to take them to a new place. And Pharaoh says, you're crazy. You're not taking my workforce. And so there's plagues. And I would love to be on a fly on the wall for the plagues. But ultimately, after so many plagues and the death of his first phone, Pharaoh relents. And he says, get out of here. And as the people are leaving, they get to this place of Red Sea, this place of, of, of panic as the armies are, of, of Pharaoh who changes mind are bearing down. And God delivers them. And he sets the Israelites on a journey to the promised land, a place that he's prepared for them. And then we get into Exodus. And in Exodus, we see that they weren't fully prepared to experience the freedom God had for them. So he begins to teach them how to worship, how to be a people out of the yoke of slavery. And I want to pick up in Exodus chapter 23, look what it says. And I promise you've never heard this before, but it's super important, especially in the lens of conflict. This is what God says to Moses and the people of his people, the Israelites. He says, see, I am sending an angel ahead of you. That angel is going to guard you along the way and bring you to the place that I prepared. Why does that matter? Is because I believe the same God that delivered the Israelites is the same God who when his son stepped out of heaven and made a way where there was no way, in his final days, he gets to the book of Acts and his disciples are there like, Jesus, is it time for you to bring heaven to earth? And he says, no, 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 no. I'm going much like this angel in Exodus, to prepare a place for you. And in the meantime, I'm going to give you one greater than I. His name is the Holy Spirit. And I will come back for you. And so much like this declaration in the Old Testament that there is someone going ahead of us, I want you to know that maybe right now in the midst of your conflict, someone is going ahead of you. Now, why is that important? because it's what he says next that affects us the most. He says, my angel will go ahead of you and he will bring into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Prezites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a lot of heights. And he says, I'm gonna wipe them out. I'm gonna remove the conflict of your life. And they're all like, yes, just like in your prayers, God deliver me. God bless me, God grant me, God give me, God bless me. And you want that blessing. 
but it's what he says next. But I'm not going to drive them out in a single year because the land would become too desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little, I'm going to drive out your enemy before you until you have increased enough to take possession of that land. Wait, what? God's going to give me something, but he's not going to give it to me all at once because he knows I can't handle it all at once. And if I don't know how to handle it, it will end up destroying me. It's almost like God saying, hey, if I gave you everything you prayed for, chances are you wouldn't know what to do with it. Uh, let me say it this way. God allows us to experience conflict amid our places of promise to prepare us to possess our freedom. Because if we're honest, we can't handle freedom. We can't handle the freedom that God desires for us. So amid the places that he's blessed us, amid our places of promise, God allows conflict to prepare us. See, conflict is a tool for connection. It connects you either to your sin nature or it connects you to your savior. Now let's be honest here. I am a person, I love conflict. I don't know why the Lord made me that way. I like watching people get uncomfortable. I like going at it. My wife hates it. I've had to learn restraint. I have learned in this new role that people love to give you their opinion. It's wild. I did a series a couple months ago on politics. Evidently, when you talk about politics, you offend the masses. I received more feedback from one message than I have in three years. What was interesting about this feedback is how oddly specific it was. I would get people that I had never had conversation with before who would watch the message and then Facebook message me. Why aren't you talking about issue one? What's keeping you from being specific? Why aren't you doing a better job? What are you afraid of? And I was like, interesting. I did not read issues in the scriptures. I read about Jesus and his desire for us to know him and the gift of the Holy Spirit who empowers us and convicts us to respond according to him. That's what I taught. Now, I will tell you, why am I telling you this? Not because I like conflict, not because I don't want you to complain. It's, it's neither that. I tell you this because here's how Kyle responded. I went to war on my keyboard. I beat that sucker up. I wrote the most original argument ever. I was going to destroy this person. <laughs> Pages of how wrong they were. And at the completion of it, I hit select all and delete and then I said, I have to do better. I wrote it again. <laughs> Select all, delete. When I finally did reply, this was my reply. Thank you for your words. <laughs> because what I had to ask myself, is my response connecting me to my sin nature or is it connecting me to my savior? And is my reply more out of my desire to be right or my desire to honor him? Now, why does that matter? Because conflict exposes in us. And that's my question for you is, what is your conflict exposing in you? Do you even know? 
And if you don't know, I would, I would absolutely invite you to ask Jesus, be careful because he'll tell you. Ignorance is bliss, so be careful. But what is conflict exposing in you? This is where I want to look at James. Now, if there's one person in scripture that understands conflict, I believe it's James, the stepbrother of Jesus. Could you imagine growing up with Jesus? No matter what happened, he's the son of God. You're wrong. I could just see them having a fight. But mom, Jesus hit me. And he's like, no, he didn't. He's the son of God. No matter what, you're wrong. But there's James, and he writes these words that I think are very, very important to us. And look what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. He asks the simple question, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? Do you not understand that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble? So humble yourself before God. Resist the devil, and guess what? He'll flee from you. He then goes down, he doubles down, he says, come close to God, and God's going to come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, because your loyalty is divided between God and the world. And then he does something that I, I think we should really pay attention to. He gives us some instruction that I don't know that we do enough of. Pay attention to this next part. Look what he says. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. What? That doesn't sound fun. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. What is he saying, church? He's saying, I want you to grieve. I want you to mourn your sin nature. I want you to understand that without me, there's not a lot of good in there. And we need to mourn it. We need to, we need to, to deal with it. We need to acknowledge it. We need to wrestle with it. Because when we understand how vile we are because of our sin nature, we only then understand how good he is. And it's in his goodness that we begin to operate in our strength. When we are weak, that's when he does his best work. He's strong. And again, what we do is we talk about how good we are. We, we operate out of our goodness and God's saying, no, no, no. I want you to operate out of your weakness. I want you to operate out of a holistic understanding of what you're not so that you know who I am. Because what I do in you is because of my goodness. If we want to see transformation in our conflict, we must first go through the experience of transformation from our pride becoming our humility. Why is that so hard? Well, it's hard because many of us have made God in our own image so badly that we've convinced ourselves that God hates all the same people that we do. God hates all the same things that we do. We've convinced ourselves that we are so close to God that we know more than anyone else. And so we throw around our opinions like hand grenades, blowing everyone else up because they don't measure up to our high view of ourself. And the question I have for you is, do you want to be right or do you want to be reconciled? Because in conflict, if all we care about is being right, we will never make a difference. But if we leverage our, conf 
our conflict to make a difference, we can never go wrong. If we want to see transformation, we have to let it be from our pride to our humility. Our pride to our humility. What does that look like? Well, Jesus told his disciples in Luke, what does it say? He says, why do you notice the little piece of dust in your friend's eye, but you don't notice the giant piece of wood in your own eye? How can you say to your friend, let me take that little piece of dust out of your eye when you cannot see the large log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the wood out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the dust out of your friend's eye. But pastor, I just want to be right. But pastor, I just want my preference to win. But here's what I'm saying to you, son, daughter, father, mother, husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, friend. We often don't win in any of our relationships if we care more about being right than reconciled. And I will tell you, the beauty of the body of Christ is that we're made up of many parts. And you know what comes with many parts? Many opinions. And our opinions are like butts. We all have them, and they stink. (laughs) And so we walk around holier than now, and God's saying, no. You don't know more. You aren't better. Your opinion isn't right. It is an opinion. It has the same amount of potential of being right as another person's opinion. And it's when we come together and we work that out that we only see the goodness of the body of Christ. And so I'll close today. We'll just give you two things. And and this is one of those times when the pastor goes, I'm going to close. And then he speaks for like 10 more minutes. Okay, so just be prepared. I'm going to close today. And I'm going to give you two practical things because I really want to be practical. I want you to walk out of here going, what do I have to do different? And so I'm going to give you one, just a real quick piece of advice on how you have to process your conflict as a person who's offended. And I will tell you this, this has become one of my favorite verses in the Bible when I am dealing with my own offense. Every time I get those messages of what I should have said different, what I could have done better, what I didn't do well enough, what I am not good at. I always start by going back to this verse and I remind myself of this beautiful, simple proverb, which is like Jesus's Twitter feed. It's a bunch of 140 character or less statements that blow your mind. And here is my favorite. What does it say in Proverbs 4.14? Where there is no oxen, the manger is clean. And everyone's like, what? So let me explain. We know this because we just celebrated Christmas. We think for some reason, I think because it markets better, that Jesus was born in some cave behind some hotel in some desolate place. And that is just not the truth. Where Jesus was born is in a standard home inside of Bethlehem, which most homes were two stories. There was the lower story that was much more like a garage. In it, and especially during the cold months, they would bring the animals in to keep them safe from predators and to keep them warm. The person's feed, the person's food, the person's materials, the person's tools would be stored in this lower level. The upstairs is where they would live. That's where they would eat. That's where they would sleep. 
It was a census. So everyone had to go to Bethlehem, especially if they had relatives from there. So the house was packed. There was no room in the inn, meaning there was no room upstairs. So Mary and Joseph had to be downstairs. Jesus was not born into a small, isolated situation in the middle of nowhere. No, Jesus was born amongst his family and a lot of people. And there was animals too, because I think sometimes we need to be reminded that Jesus came for creation, not just us. And in the midst of those animals, there was everything that comes with animals. Now that's the manger. So what this Proverbs is saying is saying, hey, if you remove the animals, guess what? You remove the mess. Parents, let me say it this way. If you remove the kids, there's no toys to step on. It's awesome. I don't know about you, but humans create quite a mess. My dog creates a mess. My dog has entered the phase in which he is now sorting his food by the kibble size. So he takes all of his food out of the dish, sorts it, and then eats it. I go, surely this is a food problem. I give him eggs and ham. He then carries the eggs to my living room and goes back and eats the ham and then comes back and eats it. And I'm going to kill him and he has to eat outside. (laughs) See, my life would be a whole lot cleaner if there was no Legos, no dogs. It was freezing And I got a call coming home from a really late meeting where my wife is panicking because our goldfish might freeze to death. (laughs) So there she is with my goldfish that I bought five for $1 (laughs) at 10 o'clock at night, pots and pans, scooping them out into a five gallon bucket, a heater running that costs more an hour than their life. To save goldfish. And I say, why? Just their fish. I'll get new ones. She's like, no, but I like these fish. So now they live in my house. And it perpetually, you walk in the living room, you're like, who left the water on? But it's really the filter of the fish kink going. If I didn't have fish, there would be no mess. Here's what I'm telling you, church. If we removed people, there'd be no problems. But that's not the completion of the verse. That's only the first part, because what is the next part? Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean but abundant crops come from the strength of the ox. So the question is, when we, can we trust God with our mess? And God is just looking at us going, uh, guys, I produce the harvest with your crap. All the stuff that's a mess, all the stuff that you think is horrible, all the conflict, all the infighting is actually what I use to change the world. And he deeply desires to change the world. Now, before I move into point number two, because that was just one, I want you to know there is a passage I didn't use this morning. And it's a passage for for whatever reason every pastor uses. It's Matthew 18. It's Jesus' command to how to deal with conflict. And it's not that I don't respect or agree or approve Matthew 18. I absolutely do. I just think we more often than not take Matthew 18 out of context and we mess it up. Let me give you this example and I would encourage you to deep dive it. Go read it. Here's how Matthew 18 starts. If your brother or sister in Christ offends you, see right there, we got to stop. If a fellow brother and sister in Christ See, conflict is about how we handle it with believers. Well, what happens if the person that we have conflict doesn't believe in Christ? Well, then it doesn't work to go to them and show them in the Bible why you're offended because they're going to look at your Bible and go, I don't care. 
And you know what? You could double down. You can go get friends and come and see them and say, no, no, listen, my friend agrees with me. You need to change. And they're going to go, I'm not changing. But let's give you the benefit of the doubt. Let's say it was the blueprint for conflict. Let's just double down. You went to them. It didn't work. You brought someone else and you tried to help them understand the error of the ways and it didn't work. You then go back to your church and your church says, hey, this person's the devil. Stay away from them. No, that's not what scripture says. Scripture says that they declare as a church, they don't value what we value. They don't believe what we believe. They don't agree with what we agree with. So here is the consequence. The consequence isn't excommunication. The consequence is treat them like a sinner. And spoiler alert, how did Jesus treat sinners? Did he kick them out? Did he excommunicate him? Did he stop calling him? Did he stop going to him? No, in fact, he left the holy and went after the sinner. In fact, he went to the cross for the sinner. So church, if you really want to start throwing around Matthew 18, then die to yourself. And, and when you're offended by someone who you can't get them to change their mind, you should passionately pursue them more than you ever did before. You should love them better than you did before. You should care about and pray for them more than you did before because... That's what it means to treat them like a sinner. But that's why I didn't use Matthew 18. But here's what I'm going to use because the truth is a lot of our conflict in the world is with people that we don't agree with, people who don't believe what we believe, people who don't value what we don't value. And so church, here's how we practically handle them. Are you ready? I put on your screen. I need you to leverage your conflict to participate in the redemptive work of Christ. And the best person to explain that to us is Timothy. In 2 Timothy, look what he says. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone. It kind of sounds like love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. I could be wrong. You must not quarrel and be kind to everyone. Be able to teach. Be patient with difficult people. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will learn the truth. Whoa, I'm sorry. Perhaps God will change their minds. You know what it didn't say? that you changed their minds. That, that you were so convincing, they changed their minds. That you need to talk more. That you need to tell better stories. That you need to do something. No, no. It says, be patient, be kind, be gentle, and let the Holy Spirit do his best work. And then what does he say? Then they will come to their senses. They will escape the devil's trap, the trap that they've been held captive by to do whatever the devil wants. They might just experience freedom that you've been praying for, that you've been begging for, that you've been preparing for. They might just experience the freedom. 
what am I saying, church? I'm saying sometimes we talk way too much and we don't pray enough. I'm saying that we sometimes think that tension and conflict is so bad that we forget what God is exposing in us because we're the body of Christ. And his conflict with him as our mediator becomes the harvest that changes the world. And so maybe right now we just need to stop talking, stop posting, stop defending because we're really good at sounding like a noisy gong to a world in desperate need of being passionately pursued by the Savior of the world and his followers, to being loved so recklessly that they want to be a part of it, to being so treated so generously they want to know why, to being prayed for so abundantly that the Holy Spirit has no choice but to intervene. You're not going to change the world because you're right. You're not going to change the world because you think you're right. You're going to change the world because you trust the one who makes it right. And so I would just ask that you lay the conflict at his cross and trust the Holy Spirit to grant freedom and peace and unity and release you of the burden because you're not changing anyone. He will. We got to love better. We got to listen more. We got to pray more. We got to start looking at our conflicts and going, God, what are you exposing in me? What do I have to change? Do I have a log in my eye? And that's where the Holy Spirit does his best work. When you're learning to listen to him. When he's convicting you and he's teaching you and he's gently reminding you of how good he is. Let's stand as we pray today. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the difficulty of your message. But God, thank you for the peace and power that comes from it. God, I pray that we would be reminded that you are a God who does miracles in our mess, even our conflict. And God, we trust you with it. We give it to you. God, help us to be gentle, kind, loving, and to pray nonstop when something doesn't feel right. And Father, may we trust you with the outcome because we recognize we're not in control. And so, Father, when we give you this conflict, when we give you this part of our life, I pray that we reflect more of you in a world in desperate need, that our calling card, our reputation, our character precedes us in a way that we become safe people who will love those who need it the most. Father, may we be reminded that to be human is to offend and be offended, but to be a follower of Christ is to trust you with the redemptive process. So God, we invite you in, we give it to you, and we surrender it to you now. And we pray these things in your holy and beautiful and good name, we pray. Amen, amen.